Hello and welcome to Original Sound Chat, where video game music is a work of art. On each episode, it's our goal to help you learn about two soundtracks from the world of games, as well as the people, stories, and critical tracks behind them. My name is Joe DeVader. And I'm Peter Spasia. We're brought to you by Anonymous Dinosaur and Rhymes with Asia. It's time to appreciate great OSTs and the games they come from without getting too bogged down in music theory. Joe, what are this week's games? Up first is 2003's Silent Hill 3, a return to the foggy streets of Silent Hill, this time for a story that serves as a direct follow-up to the original 1999 PlayStation title. Following that is The Rise of DeadSec, building off of Ubisoft's open-world hacking blueprint set in the streets of San Francisco. 2016's Watch Dogs 2. It's the last... October episode! Happy Halloween in advance! I actually cannot believe this is the last October episode. This month went by so quickly. <laughs> it really did. All of the spooky games gone in a flash. Until next year, I guess. Uh, theme this week. Boy, it was real hard to, to pull one out. <laughs> uh, we thought maybe the initials H and M? Uh, because you have protagonists of Heather Mason and Marcus Holloway. But then before the show, we're talking, and maybe there's something involving genitalia? We'll have to see. Joe, how are you doing? What are you playing? I'm doing all right. Uh, I finished Silent Hill 4, and I can't recommend it, because it sucks. It's a bad game. The last three hours are an escort mission going back through environments you've already been through. And it's just a bad, bad game. But also, I, I finally sat down and played the Melody of Memory demo. And I actually really dig it. Like, I think it's really good. So I'm very much looking forward to the release of that game. Okay. That's good to know. Uh, my Hades clear count sits at three. I did uh, one more clear with the fists of Malfung. So, yeah, that, that's a fun one for sure, especially when you get good dash strike boosts. Uh, unfortunately, I also died two Hades twice. Mm. So those are starting to rack up when your build's just not good enough. Yeah, I, and also like... Man, the Temple of Sticks does not screw around. Like, the enemies in that area are just really hard. So if you don't get real lucky and find the Seder Sack real quick, uh, you can that can also sort of screw you over. Poison just wrecks you, too. It's, it's miserable. Mm -hmm. I also decided for a spooky game around this Halloween time, should I play something actually scary like Resident Evil 7? No. What about that scary glitch? Of Assassin's Creed Unity faces. Ah, I'll go play Assassin's Creed Unity for the first time since the game launched. Because I got it at launch and then didn't really play much of it when the performance issues on a base PS4 were evident. Uh, so I'm playing on PC now and I'm going through it. And boy, it's a, it's a game really meant for a different time. <laughs> it's the Assassin's Creed with multiplayer. So they really try to force you. With that, even saying like, hey, if you do multiplayer missions, uh, your encounters on the streets, the, the police presence, the, the patriot presence and all that, that'll be really diminished. I don't want to play multiplayer <laughs> missions. Well, what about 
opening the second screen app because some chests are locked and you need to open them in the second screen app. <laughs> no. What about the icon glut of all the icons crammed in Pali? No, no. Oh God. But here's here's Ezio Auditore's outfit in a gold treasure chest. You know, it's not so bad after all. I'll take that. Thank you. Uh, I am on sequence five of 12. I just assassinated Le Rat de Thun, the king of beggars. So making progress. It's not great, but at least I'm going through the only mainline Assassin's Creed game since two that I have not beaten. Huh. It's, it's interesting to hear that that game has more problems than just the skin going inside out. Right, right. Let's talk about some composer follow-up news, though. We've talked about the different composers on this show. They're still making great things, doing great stuff. Let's talk about some of the game headlines from the past week, see how those composers are involved. You know, we forgot to mention last episode, the Super Smash Brothers Minecraft music samples uh, officially were revealed with you know, the game patch coming out. Uh, so we now know some of the arrangers on the different Minecraft tracks, and there are quite several uh, for composers that we've talked about on the show before. For example, the track Holland slash Dalarna, the music that was shown in the Steve reveal trailer, is arranged by Ace, uh, Toys on a Tear, arranged by Yuzo Koshiro, Dance of the Blocks, arranged by Yoko Shimomura, and the Arc Illager, arranged by Motoi Sakuraba. And I think the the best thing to come out of these is, first of all, Holland Delarna is, like, without a single doubt in my mind, the best one on this list, though Dance of the Blocks is pretty close. Uh, but the thing that I've loved the most is Yuzo Koshiro did a tweet where he was talking about how his nephew really likes Minecraft. And so he, he decided to arrange one of the songs he had heard from his nephew playing Minecraft on Switch. Uh, and I think that's I think that's very neat. Meanwhile, there will be a Kingdom Hearts live Q&A with the one and only Yoko Shimomura. Well, there will be in our world, in your world, it's already happened because it happened on October 23rd. You can likely find a uh, video of it on YouTube. We haven't seen it yet. This is kind of the worst of both worlds for us because... <laughs> It happens tonight at time of recording, but yeah, you can probably go find that on YouTube and it'll be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing what she has to say because she is my favorite composer working in the industry. Yukio Kallio announced that he is releasing a new album of what he calls, quote, finished minimalistic pop songs called Kuvankaunis. I'm going to guess that's how that's pronounced. It's available now for listening on Spotify, and you can buy it through Bandcamp. So good for him releasing more music. He's had a big year. Uh, part of that Fall Guys soundtrack for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, damn. This is uh, this is Jukio Kalios' year. Meanwhile, uh, Monster Prom 2 Monster Camp is now available on PC. I have not had a chance to play it yet. Despite being in the beta, I technically could have played it weeks ago but didn't but uh the demo i played a long time ago was a lot of fun it seems to just be monster prom but more and i'm very much looking forward to giving it a shot so let's jump into our first game that being silent hill 3 which was originally released for the playstation 2 
on March 23rd, 2003 in Europe, then June 3rd, 2003 in Japan, which, hmm, that's an interesting gap there, and then August 5th, 2003 in North America, yet another weird gap. A PC release would follow on November 7th, 2003 in Europe and April 6th, 2004 in North America, and it is, of course, also one of the two games included in the ill-fated Silent Hill HD collection, which don't play that version. It was developed by Team Silent and published by Konami. It is the third game in the Silent Hill series, as you might have guessed by the name. Uh, And last year, for one of the October shows, I talked about its predecessor, Silent Hill 2, which is one of my favorite games of all time. And so if you want to go hear me talk for way too long about Silent Hill, you can go listen to that episode. I also sort of got into some of the history behind the series and all that. Uh, Silent Hill 3, much like the rest of the series, is a psychological horror adventure game where the player is put in control of Heather Mason, who is the adopted daughter of Harry Mason, the protagonist of the original PlayStation 1 game. Uh, The game is built around exploring environments, finding items, fighting or avoiding monsters, and solving puzzles in various locations. The story is such as Heather Mason suddenly awakens from a nightmare about an amusement park, having fallen asleep in a burger restaurant at the mall. She's approached by a private investigator, Douglas Cartland, who claims to have information on her birth. Heather is not interested in this information and ducks out, finding the mall to be completely abandoned outside of some monsters. While exploring the mall, she encounters Claudia Wolf, who informs Heather that she's the key to turning the world into a paradise. Heather is thrown into the other world, with Claudia eventually telling her that she'll be waiting for her arrival in Silent Hill. What are Claudia's intentions with Heather? What is the connection to Heather's birth? And what awaits her in the mysterious town of Silent Hill? Peter, this is where I will ask, what are our experiences with Silent Hill 3? Nothing with Silent Hill 3, though I used a guide one time to go through a play session of Silent Hill, the original, on PlayStation. Uh, So interesting to note that it's a follow-up. Granted, the original Silent Hill tells, I think, a messy story Mm -hmm. and starts to get into the occult real fast and it's not explained super well. But uh, interesting to note that it's really like a a spiritual or direct follow-up to that game. Yeah, it's this game's not much better in terms of the actual like story not being kind of a mess because while Silent Hill 2 sort of focuses on like the psychological aspect and the cult is pretty much never mentioned uh this game goes back to no this game's about the cult it's all about the cult in fact Silent Hill like as a whole goes back to being about the cult from here on but it's basically the sort of messy story of Silent Hill if it was put into the art direction and sensitivities of Silent Hill 2. Okay. And I think that sort of makes up for it a little bit. Uh, I like Silent Hill 2 a lot better, obviously, because that's one of my favorite games of all time, and Silent Hill 3 probably doesn't even crack the top 20. And I played it for the first time, uh, I want to say like 
four years ago. It would have been in 2016. So yeah, four years ago. And I, I like it. Uh, I know a lot of people don't think it's very good, but I enjoyed it a lot. I enjoyed it a hell of a lot more than four. And so I, I honestly think it's worth going back to. And Heather is just a lot of fun. I think Heather is the most fun Silent Hill protagonist that there is. So yeah, let's talk about the development of Silent Hill 3 because there's some weird stuff going on here. So after the release of Silent Hill 2, Team Silent apparently began working on two new projects simultaneously that were meant to explore different takes on the series. The first was a spin-off title that was given the project name Room 302 which would, of course, be reworked later into Silent Hill 4, The Room. Uh, The other was a rail shooter that would not serve as a direct sequel to either of the previous Silent Hill games, largely apparently due to Silent Hill 2's slow sales in Japan. I guess the game was not super popular over there, which is a little funny to think about now that it's like considered one of the most influential horror games of all time. But Japan has different sensibilities, I guess. Uh, Series art director Masahiro Ito actually says that the rail shooter stage of development went on for a long time and wasted a ton of the project's time and budget, which kind of put the game in a precarious position. And that that rail shooter would eventually be reworked, uh, uh, hopefully when they realized that a Silent Hill rail shooter is stupid. Even though one actually does exist, it's Silent Hill the Arcade. And so that game got reworked into what we now know as Silent Hill 3. It was developed by a smaller team than the previous game, around 40 people in total, including most of the core team of Silent Hill 2, as well as multiple newcomers. And uh, most of the information I could find on the game's development actually was basically about character designs, not really much about like why things were designed the way they were, just Here's why the characters look like this. I don't know. Uh, I learned that Douglas, the detective, is actually named after American actor Douglas Fairbanks, and his appearance was based on actors like Giancarlo Giannini and Ian Holm. Uh, Claudia, the game's main antagonist, was apparently the hardest character designed for the game. They wanted to dress her as a holy lady to reflect her position in the Silent Hill cult, But her original design featured full-body tattoos and a shaved head. And they kind of decided this made the fact that she was evil maybe a little bit too obvious. (laughs) (laughs) So they ditched the tattoos and they gave her shoulder-length hair. Also, her name was apparently originally Christy. But the team decided that this made her seem too cute. And so instead, they decided to name her after Italian actress Claudia Cardinale. For some reason, the one character I couldn't find any information on why they were designed the way they were was Heather, the main character of the game. And she has a pretty unique look for a Japanese design game to have uh, her look be a a protagonist. So that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. She's kind of like she's wearing a down vest or something. Uh, And then I believe she's wearing a skirt. And she has like blonde hair and like she's kind of dressed punk rock a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's kind of disappointing to not find anything on why she looks like that. But eh. 
Silent Hill 3 also introduced Robbie the Rabbit, whom you have probably seen. He's sort of become a sort of in-joke-slash-mascot character in the Silent Hill franchise. He appears in multiple future titles. Uh, he's in Silent Hill 4 as a, a plush that is sitting on Eileen's bed, that kind of thing. Uh, it's the pink rabbit with the blood around his mouth, like the mascot character. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. That is Robbie the Rabbit. He's sort of just become a Silent Hill mainstay thing. He originated in this game. He is the the mascot of the amusement park that you go to near the end of the game. Uh, Silent Hill 3 reviewed rather well upon release. It's currently sitting at an 85 on Metacritic. Uh, most reviewers praised its atmosphere and well-done scary aspects, but they criticized the fact that it's a uh, Rather hard to follow if you don't already know the plot of the original Silent Hill, which normally I'd be like, well, yeah, it's a sequel. But also, the last game had nothing to do with the first game, so I can 100% understand somebody going straight into this one and suddenly the first one matters again. By November 2003, the game had sold over 300,000 copies, which for a horror game in 2003, not terrible. Silent Hill 3, I didn't know this. I knew of this movie. I didn't know that it is an adaptation of Silent Hill 3. Silent Hill Revelation 3D was released in 2012. This film is generally considered to be very bad. Uh, I saw somebody describe it recently as it feels like it was written by an algorithm. <laughs> it currently has a 5% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow, yeah. I had no idea that it was based on Silent Hill 3. Like, no idea at all. I just knew that the movie exists. And Pyramid Head is in that movie, so it, again, it doesn't make sense. What? What's happening? Team Silent would, of course, release one final Silent Hill game, being the way too often mentioned in this episode, Silent Hill for the Room, before being shut down and spread about Konami. Konami would then make a policy of farming future Silent Hill games out to Western studios. Very few of those games are good and the series is overall kind of dead. Nowadays, if you want to hear more details on how the Silent Hill franchise went from here, uh, I actually go into it quite in depth in the Silent Hill 2 episode, so you can go check out that. Konami claims that there are two Silent Hill games in development right now. I don't know if I believe them, but that's what they say. Silent Hill for PS5 is definitely one of those hot rumors about the industry right now. And we know that some of the people from Team Silent, like some of the head people, uh, went on to help make Gravity Rush or Gravity Days, the Japanese title. Mm -hmm. And so, like, they're kind of working with Japan Studio for Sony Interactive Entertainment. And then there's thoughts of, like, oh, well, Hideo Kojima just announced that uh, he is, they're hiring for a new project over at Kojima Productions. And Ludwig Forsell, forgot this headline, uh, is recording music for a new Kojima Productions project. So who knows if anything could be announced at the Game Awards or beyond. Uh, it's it's definitely one of those, we've heard talk about something, but we'll see if something ever happens. It's it's hard to say, but yeah, we'll, uh, we'll have to keep our ears on that one. I believe that when Konami confirmed that there are games in development, uh, they said one was a reboot, of sorts, which I assume if the Japan Studios rumor is true, probably that one. But mm -hmm. then another one is a game in the style of Until Dawn, which 
You could not say less fitting words to me at all in any way, shape, or form if you tried. <laughs> I don't want Until Dawn but Silent Hill. I don't want it. Konami, be honest. Is that one with Pachinko? Is that one with uh, Gotcha Elements? <laughs> like, how, how are you going to you know, squeeze money into that format? Let's let's be honest. <sighs> I just, I, being a Silent Hill fan is so tiring. <laughs> it is pain. So... Obviously, the soundtrack for Silent Hill 3 was done pretty much entirely by Akira Yamaoka, the man, the myth, the legend. But I've already talked about Akira Yamaoka. We did that last year. So I went looking for a name of somebody that I could have talked about this year, and I found a couple options, but the one that seemed the most fitting was Joe Ramersa. So Joe Ramersa was born in California in 1956. He became interested in music after watching the Beatles perform on the Ed Sullivan Show. And then he started his music career touring as a drummer for the Mark Tanner Band in the mid to late 70s. And then one day, while working in a studio, he would meet songwriter Vincent Nicoletti, and the two would form a, quote, Thai Western band called Soy Cowboy. (laughs) I don't know what Thai Western means, but Soy Cowboy is a fantastic name. However, at Age 19, his tour career ended abruptly, causing him to become homeless. He says he spent this time sleeping on a park bench in New Jersey and deciding he needed to find a spot in the music industry that would not only keep him close to the art style and art form that he loved, but also maybe make him money that he could use to live. (laughs) So he moved back to California and began to study sound engineering, and he spent that time serving as an engineer and drummer on various albums. And it was during this time that he also began to get into voice acting and directing ADR, which led him into the anime and games industries. So in 2002, he was introduced by a couple of people at Yamaoka's music label to Akira Yamaoka, and after a jam session where apparently, as he puts it, they could only communicate through music for the first, like, hour because Akira does not speak English. (laughs) And they did not have a translator until, like, an hour later. And once that translator showed up after this jam session, Yamaoka asked if he would like to assist with the current Silent Hill projects, and they got to talking about Remersal working on Silent Hill. That's such a cool story. I love that. He released his first solo album in 2017 called Enough. He lists his musical influences. He lists a lot of them, honestly. Uh, Some of the ones that he mentions are Beethoven, John Cage, Jimi Hendrix, Louis Prima, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, and David Bowie, among many others. And he has also done uh, voiceover work in various anime, including Akira, Code Geass, Cowboy Bebop, Fist of the North Star, Ghost in the Shell, Outlaw Star, The Big O, Trigun, and a bunch more. Those are just the ones I recognized. Uh, and he's also done ADR and voice direction in multiple anime as well. So the dude, the dude gets around, it seems. In terms of discography and working on games, uh, he is credited as a music supervisor and featured vocalist on Silent Hill 3, as a supervisor, lyrics writer, and vocalist on Silent Hill 4 The Room, as well as a lyrics writer on Silent Hill Origins, Homecoming, and Shattered Memories. He was also apparently one of the lead sound designers on Resident Evil 5, and he was the ADR director on Suicoden 4. 
So that's a real interesting uh, lineup of, of games to have worked on. So for historical development research, again, the majority of the soundtrack was composed by Akira Yamaoka. Again, Ramerso was credited as music supervisor. And this soundtrack, the way that it sort of puts itself apart from Silent Hill 2 is it features multiple vocal songs, which is something that was a first for the series. Most of the vocals for these songs were done by voice actress slash vocalist Mary Elizabeth McGlynn, with Joe Ramersa providing the vocals for one song. So why don't we just go ahead and jump in to the Critical Five? It's time. Uh, the first track on the Critical Five is You're Not Here. So now what should I do? I'm strong This is the music for the opening video, like the one that plays before the title screen. Man, remember when games had that? <laughs> yeah, good times. Good times. Uh, this is my personal favorite song in the game. It has like a very punk aesthetic to it, which I think fits Heather super well. She's a rebellious teenager and she's having an awful experience. And this song's vibe, I think, really, really matches that. And the lyrics are, if you listen to them, about her relationship with Harry and, spoiler alert, for a game that came out almost 20 years ago, her eventual loss of Harry Mason. Uh, and I just really like the lyrics of this song, and I really like the guitar part of this song. It's really repetitive, but it's just a lot of fun. Mary McGlynn, like, does really, really well. At, as the vocalist, and I don't know, this is just a great song all around. I'm a I'm a big fan. I thought I hadn't heard this song before, but then the lead up into the chorus, and then the chorus itself, like, oh, okay, like this is where this song's from, and so it's always a good feeling to like put that mental connection together. Like, oh, this is from Silent Hill Three. Got it. Mm -hmm. It was apparently in DDR. One of the DDR games? <laughs> mm, I don't think that was where I was pulling it from. <laughs> Maybe some YouTubers using it somewhere. I don't know. Maybe. I, I had never heard this song before playing the game, uh, but it became one of those opening videos that I just sort of watched every time. I, I don't think it's as good as Theme of Laura from 2. No, no, yeah. But I think this song's pretty good. Following that, critical track number two is End of Small Sanctuary. probably a weird pick if you've played the game you might think that i'm uh, a little weird to put this one on there but this is one of the first songs that you hear in game like it, it plays during the sort of opening minutes 
when you first get control of Heather. Uh, and it just has this really melancholy feeling to it. This song, more than pretty much any other when I hear it, uh, brings back memories of Silent Hill 3 because this song was actually used in the intro to the Super Best Friends playthrough of the game, which is the main reason that I ended up playing it myself, because I wanted to watch that, but I wanted to play Silent Hill 3 first. So I did, and then I watched all that, and it was it was a good time. So this song has a very big connection to the game for me. Like, there's not much to it. It's just a, a very simple guitar piece that just sort of builds and builds and adds parts every once in a while. And uh, I, I just, I kind of dig it. And yet it's so Yamaoka, right? I mean, with those electric guitars, mm-hmm. I, I think, if anything, it's like the most similar song to his Silent Hill 2 work that you'll hear on this list. Well, I mean, there are a couple others that kind of go in like the different genre play, right? But as far as like echoing maybe Theme of Laura a little bit with the electric guitar and just kind of the, the chill vibe there, yeah, it's, it's definitely Yamoka. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, let's get a little bit weird with critical track number three, that is Walk on Vanity Ruins. In here is a tragedy. Art thou place or audience? Be as it may, the end of the world. All go on only toward death. The first words at thy left hand, a false lunacy, a madly dancing man, hearing unhearable words drawn to a blind screen. No, seriously, they went all in on including vocals in this soundtrack, right down to the idea that this song just features spoken word. Remember last week for Danganronpa when I was like, yeah, I have a song that's kind of similar to that. Uh, This is the one I was talking about. Yeah, sure is. He is all that remains of a once powerful nation. (laughs) The words being said are actually apparently a riddle from one of the puzzles when playing on hard difficulty. Uh, In Silent Hill, you can set puzzle difficulty and combat difficulty separately, which is something every game of this type should have. And so if you're playing on hard puzzle difficulty, this riddle is apparently your clue for that specific puzzle. What? That's crazy. But yeah, no, need the difficulties, but that's that's some deep thinking there. I mean, that's Silent Hill for you. I've never played a Silent Hill game on hard puzzle difficulty because I am not smart enough for that. No, gosh. <laughs> this song, I think, really, really brings about the cult vibe that the games are going for. Like, having that spoken word over this song really kind of drives home the whole cult thing. So it feels like somebody's reading from a religious text, and it's it's kind of a little bit unsettling, if I'm being honest. So I, I really, really like this this sort of... I wouldn't say it's one of the best songs on the soundtrack, but it is certainly one of the most unique. Yeah, mission accomplished for it being unsettling, but I'm a big fan. I like it. Meanwhile, my second favorite song in the game is actually critical track number four, Rain of Brass Petals.
just this like overbearing bass synth and then this driving beat and this really heavy piano part and it just it all comes together really well i think and then it's got like those creepy droning sounds in the background that are that's some silent hill flavor baby that's a spicy silent hill there's a vocal version of this song on some versions of the soundtrack but i don't think it's as good shout out to the sitar that comes in at the end of the clip that is a really uh unique sound for it to come in and it makes it stand out and not to you know borrow a little bit from the track title but also big rainy mood vibes Mm-hmm. big rainy mood vibes uh which is a little bit weird because i don't think it rains at any point in this silent hill game huh? i think rain is like a plot point in literally one silent hill game ever <laughs> and that's downpour which is not a good game the final track on the critical five is flower crown of poppy This is the music for the final boss, which you might be surprised to hear, but Silent Hill final boss. Uh, This is nowhere near the weirdest final boss theme that the series has had. One day we'll talk about the song in Silent Hill that samples a dental drill. That won't be one of the critical five because I don't even want to listen to that. But weird final boss themes are kind of just a thing that Silent Hill does. But I really, really like this one because it just feels like this is the Silent Hill that I came for. This the industrial machine noises that make up the percussion uh, and the loud, overwhelming, sinister feeling synths. This is just this is Yamaoka to a T and I absolutely adore it. If Yamaoka weren't playing electric guitar, he's banging on some metal pipes and some industrial sounds and say this is the other. Silent Hill sound for sure, and it's effective, but yeah, I don't know if I'd peg it as final boss. Interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit weird, but Silent Hill, like I said, that's kind of a tradition for Silent Hill final bosses to sound super weird. So, for tracks on the cutting room floor, I got a couple here. The first one is Letter from the Lost Days. Ten years ago This is yet another vocal track. Uh, The lyrics are a little bit iffy, I think. Like, they're a little weird. But McGlynn's performance is just very nice to listen to in this song. And the song just feels really sad and melancholy. Uh, The song is essentially, the lyrics are essentially Heather reflecting on how she had a pretty good life before this. And sort of framing that as Heather from 10 years ago writing a letter to Heather of now. And I I, kind of dig this song. Meanwhile, for the second song on the cutting room floor, that's 
hometown. This song was performed by Joe Remersa. It is the credits theme of Silent Hill 3. It is also a vocal rendition of the original Silent Hill theme. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> which I think is kind of cool overall. I'm not a huge fan of this song, but I think it being the original Silent Hill theme alone is just pretty good. I prefer the original version a lot. But, I don't know, this is a cool thing to put on the soundtrack, and the lyrics are about Harry Mason and his adventures in Silent Hill, and it's, uh, it's fun. And especially when we're talking about Joe Ramersa, to hear him singing, even if it's a little bit weird, <laughs> it's a good thing to hear, nonetheless. He's pretty talented, though. Like, that's a, that's a deeper voice than I could ever get. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, don't, yeah, don't get me wrong, it's a, it's a tough style to emulate and keep up, it's just... Not what I would have expected for a vocal version of the Silent Hill theme. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wouldn't expect a vocal version of the Silent Hill theme in general, to be perfectly fair. <laughs> I would have expected, like, maybe a little more insidious? I don't know. So what will I never forget about Silent Hill 3? Like I said, it's not as good as Silent Hill 2. Silent Hill 2 is a better game in pretty much every fashion, uh, except for the protagonist. I think I like Heather more than I like James. Uh, James's story is better, but overall, I think Heather is a more fun character because while James just sort of puts up with all the weirdness of Silent Hill, Heather just sort of has this air of like, what is happening? Why is this happening? This sucks. I hate this. And I think she's I think she's a lot of fun. I definitely think that Silent Hill 3 is worth going back to if you are a fan of horror games or you were just a fan of Silent Hill in general. Uh, but I would play two first. Not because you need to, but because it's a better game. And then uh, pretend Silent Hill ended after that for your own good. So for our transition, we like to highlight a fan cover or remix. And uh, of course, I had to go looking for a remix of You're Not Here. Surprisingly difficult to find one that I really, really liked. And I did eventually stumble upon one by YouTuber Nesshead80, that's N-E-S, H-E-A-D-80. It's pretty good. I like it. So please enjoy that, and we'll be right back. So when it comes to protagonist initials of H and M, and maybe some genitalia, you didn't explain genitalia in Silent Hill 3. Oh, that's true. Uh, most of the enemies in Silent Hill 3 are shaped like dicks. <laughs> there you go. Easy enough. We'll get to what the relevance of that is in Watch Dogs 2. Watch Dogs 2 is the sequel to 2014's Watch Dogs. Uh, they want you to remember that the game is stylized in all caps with watch underscore dogs. <laughs> and watch dogs was the 
the game that really introduced the world to the possibilities of what a next generation of consoles could be like at E3 2012. Before we all realized that this was a big giant ruse and Watchdogs would not be looking that good. I even remember that Watchdogs demo when it was first revealed at E3 2012. And I'm just like, games have peaked. Like no game could possibly look this good. And it's like, oh, that was, that was a lie. Got it. I remember all of our friends being like, oh man, Watchdogs looks so good. And then things started to fall apart. And I never ended up playing Watchdogs. I think I got it for launch at that system, but I, I never played it. The Watchdogs project was originally under the working title of Nexus, and it took like five years to develop, which is a shame that it ended up how it did. But the pitch of that was that you could control an entire city with the push of a button. And so that premise in general kind of continues into its sequel. Watchdogs 2 was released for PS4 and Xbox One on November 15th, 2016. A PC version would be released two weeks later on the 29th. It was primarily developed by Ubisoft Montreal, with additional work by Ubisoft Paris, Toronto, Bucharest, Kiev, and Ubisoft Reflections. It is a third-person, open-world action-adventure game with stealth elements. Basically, in a realistic depiction of a large city where the technology grid is ever-reaching and it's run by a nefarious company, you play as a skilled hacker. And you can take actions such as manipulating every mobile phone in the game. You can disrupt traffic by hacking cars and traffic lights. You can hack into monitoring cameras in addition to piloting a drone and using an RC car for remote surveillance. At your disposal, you have a taser and a melee weapon of a billiard ball on a yo-yo. You also have more lethal means. You can craft firearms and things like that. But... It's a game that definitely leans towards and would like you to do stealth as opposed to more violent actions. The plot of Watch Dogs 2, it is set three years after the events in Chicago in the original game. And it takes place where San Francisco has become the first city to install the next generation of the Central Operating System, or CTOS. This is a computing network developed by the tech company Bloom that is connecting every device together into a single system. Now, the hacker group known as DeadSec has discovered just how damaging this system is to the citizens of San Francisco. So the group wants to launch a social media campaign that exposes Bloom's corruption and crimes. When a young hacker named Marcus Holloway has been charged with a crime that he didn't commit through CTOS, he wants to join DeadSec, and he needs to pass a test of removing his profile from Bloom's system to do so. Join Sitara, Wrench, Horatio, and Josh, who are the local members of DeadSec. Can you take back your city? Can DeadSec expose Bloom and its CEO, Dusan Nemich, while stopping CTOS 2.0? Joe, here's where I'll ask you, what are our experiences with Watch Dogs 2? I have never played a Watch Dogs game in any way, shape, or form. Uh, Ubisoft kind of poisoned the well on that one, because when I think of Watch Dogs, uh, I think of Aiden Pierce's iconic cap and stuff like that. Sure, absolutely. Uh, and also just not a super huge fan of Ubisoft right now in general, but 
Watch Dogs is just never a series that I felt the need to give a look. Like, Legion looks good, but I'm probably still not going to buy it. I don't know. Ubisoft really, really poisoned the well incredibly hard on Watch Dogs for me, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that. Yeah, and they did understandably so. Like I said, I was really excited for the original Watch Dogs, and then, yeah, did not ever start that game because of how much they had done so. But I got Watch Dogs 2 when I bought a new graphics card, or I got a new graphics card for Christmas or something like that. Uh, at the end of 2016... And going into 2017, and I, you know, installed it in the computer, and I'm like, well, let's give it a shot. I'm, I'm kind of curious. And yet, Watch Dogs 2, much better, I think, than Watch Dogs in a variety of reasons that we'll get to in the development history. I think they really took the right approach with, with this one in particular. I'm excited for Watch Dogs Legion, but as I'm starting to look at the costs of next generation and everything involved. Uh, it may be one I lean more towards a high priority rental, but uh, it's a game I definitely want to play, especially after I played and beat Watch Dogs 2. I really enjoyed my time with it. According to creative director Jonathan Moran, the first game's main goal of Watch Dogs was to establish the Watch Dogs brand. Then it was intended that the team would take risks with the sequel instead of creating a more polished version of the original game. So they did this with a more tongue-in-cheek tone to the game's writing, visual style, uh, art in general. And they also have a black protagonist. Marcus Holloway is completely different than Aiden Pierce in every single way possible. Uh, Aiden Pierce's stern, gruff guy, white guy with his iconic cap, and I'm really serious. I'm going after you, you kidnap my wife or whatever. And Marcus Holloway is just like, look, man, I, I got charged with a crime. I'm going to use my skills and, you know, fight the system. Crack jokes. Use your abilities. Have fun with it. Does he still wear an iconic cap, though? No, I, he wears a cap, but it's nowhere near like the... <laughs> the self-congratulation nature that uh, the original Watch Dogs was. I still can't believe that's, I think, the worst it's ever been of, like, we have decided that our character is now iconic. They were saying that before the game even came out. Right, right. That was, oh, that's the worst it's ever been. And, of course, Aiden Pierce appears in cameo cutscenes uh, in, in Watch Dogs 2. They gotta connect the universe somehow together, right? But... Uh, even looking at him when he appeared, it's just like, I kind of cap my butt. Like, honestly. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that, that stuff sticks with you for sure. But Marcus is a great protagonist and uh, honestly, a breath of fresh air when it comes to protagonists in games overall, especially in 2016. The driving mechanics were also vastly improved for the game. This is with the help of Ubisoft Reflections. Uh, Reflections is a studio that was originally based in, I guess they're still based in Newcastle, England, and then Ubisoft bought them. They're the makers of the Driver series. Hmm. So apparently Watch Dogs was originally built on the Disrupt engine, which was an engine that was intended for the Driver series. And it's like, pivot to Watch Dogs. But yeah, they made the driving mechanics a lot better. They added like motorcycles and things like that. It actually feels 
really good to drive in this game, especially because, yeah, San Francisco is a pretty big area. Like, you're covering, like, four main areas of, like, downtown, Oakland, Silicon Valley, uh, and the Marin area, I, I think, as well, the Marine area. Uh, so they also worked with consultant hackers who would validate the scripts for the game, including the use of jargon, as well as the gameplay mechanics to ensure the authenticity of using hacking in games. The propaganda that's used by the hacker group DeadSec in the game, the protagonists, uh, it's really pop arty and it's really bright and garish and it's influenced by animated GIF culture, glitch art, and comic books from the late 1940s. The team from Ubisoft Montreal would take frequent trips to California for accuracy. Uh, you can even visit Ubisoft San Francisco in the world of the game. I happened to stop by there when I was in San Francisco a few months ago, and that was like really neat to see. But in the world of the game, you can go there, and there's a little side mission where you can hack in their offices and discover a teaser trailer video. It was like this spaceship that was kind of hovering over a planet like very sci-fi exploration like and it was something that got a lot of people talking like um is this an actual ubisoft game are they putting it just as an easter egg or like is this a way of embedding like oh no we're working on this game and for a while people just thought like oh, oh maybe they're working on it but maybe it got canceled the code name was pioneer and it was thought for a while to be like canceled or retooled but Ubisoft is launching a VR space exploration game this month called Agos, a game of space. Kind of similar visuals. Maybe it was retooled. Hard to say. We'll have to see when the game's out just how similar it was. But I, I remember that side mission for sure. It got a lot of uh, game blogs talking and all that for sure. It is a Ubisoft open world, though, that is immediately explorable. The way you grow your character is that through your actions, you gain dead sec followers. And as a result, you like level up and you gain ability points that way. Uh, definitely different than Ubisoft open world games of the past, like how I'm playing Assassin's Creed Unity right now. And sections of Paris are blocked off with like difficulty levels. And you have to still go to the viewpoint to defog the map. Nope. San Francisco, it's your home turf. It's immediately accessible. Go anywhere. Do anything. It's again, another breath of fresh air. After being suggested at Ubisoft earnings calls in early 2016, Watch Dogs 2 was officially revealed at E3 2016, and it actually hit its originally intended launch date. So, I guess a rarity these days for sure. But then it hit some controversy when a player discovered after the game launched that there was a female NPC that had fully rendered genitalia after the character was knocked over and the player noticed this and I was like, what the hell? And he took a screenshot of it, shared it, and then uh, PlayStation suspended his account temporarily for sharing adult material. This would be later patched out, but it was another case of what the heck, Ubisoft. Somebody had to, like, physically do that. <laughs> Like, that's not something that would show up in an accident, like on accident. No, that's, okay. that's something somebody specifically had to do. And yeah, thank goodness it got patched out. So there you go. The genitalia connection. Watch Dogs 2 was reviewed fairly well with Metacritic scores of 82 and 81 on PS4 and Xbox One, respectively, 75 on PC. 
reviewers appreciated the tonal shift of the game of not really taking itself too seriously, an improved setting, improved characters, and a better story. There were some performance issues at launch, but the biggest issue that people had was that players could take lethal approaches. They could you know, 3D model guns in games and kill guards and things like that, take lethal action, which players were rightfully saying seemed drastically out of character for, quote, an anonymous-esque group of peaceful hacktivists. When, yeah, DeadSec is all about, like, taking back power and doing things peacefully and building a social media campaign. It doesn't make sense to be like, and we're straight murdering people. I mean, if you're looking to change stuff, doesn't <laughs> get much more changed than that, I guess. Uh... <laughs> I guess so. But I feel like that's a really valid complaint. That's why I, for as much as I could, I tried to do stealth. But yeah, sometimes you get in trouble and you got to you know, mow down lots of guards. So I, I, I get that. But I think it's just when you talk about that ludonarrative dissonance, pretty strong when it comes to how the characters in the plot are represented in Watch Dogs 2. I wonder if there's anything about it that was like some higher up telling them like, but GTA is hot right now and you need it to be more like GTA. I mean, considering what we've heard about Ubisoft management, it would not surprise me. Yeah. As of March 2020, the game has sold over 10 million copies worldwide. Oh my goodness, I did not know it had sold that much. Wow. But it was lost in a lot of the award shuffle that year. Again, 80s not going to cut it for a lot of games. Though at the Navigator Awards, which you know comes up every now and then, it was nominated for Best Game Franchise Adventure and Best Original Dramatic Score Franchise. An extended ending for Watch Dogs 2 that was released in a February 2017 post-launch patch suggested that more dead sex cells were popping up all over the world, and coordinates at the end suggested London, England. So it made all the sense in the world after long-standing rumors that Watch Dogs Legion was revealed at E3 2019, which takes place in London, and it was originally intended to launch on March 6th, 2020. The game releases this Thursday, October 29th, on PS4, Xbox One, and PC, with versions for PS5 and Xbox Series X planned for launch. So yes, this is why we're talking about Watch Dogs this week. The composer for Watch Dogs 2 is Ross Matthew Burchard, or he's better known by his stage name of Hudson Mohawk. He's born February 11th, 1986 in Glasgow, Scotland. In 2001, at the age of 15, Burchard, under the name DJ Itchy, oh, yeah. was the youngest UK finalist at the DMC World DJ Championships. He would also be known as DJ Mayhem before adopting his stage name of Hudson Mohawk. How did he get that name? Hudson Mohawk was, quote, the name of a weird statue that was at a house I used to live at, a house that was built in the 1700s. So he saw a name on a statue, and it's like, yep, I'm going to go by that. He was a founding member of the UK label collective Lucky Me. In 2011, he formed the duo Tonight, that is T-N-G-H-T in caps, with Canadian producer Lunice. In 2007, Burchard applied to the Red Bull Music Academy. 
and he was invited to attend this event in Toronto, where he first met Steve Beckett of Warp Records, who was giving a lecture there. Beckett would later sign Hudson Mohawk to Warp Records two years later. In 2012, Burchard signed with Kanye West's Good Music Production Team, and he contributed to West's 2013 LP, Yeezus, and subsequent projects on the label. He's produced for a range of artists, including Kanye, Pusha T, Drake, ASAP Rocky, and Anoni. If you're curious what tracks he co-produced on Yeezus, uh, he worked on tracks I Am A God and Blood On The Leaves. In general, Hudson Mohawk is, he was originally recognized for his turntable work, but nowadays he receives praise for his, quote, genre-smashing production approach, in which styles of music are, quote, incorporated, manipulated, and bounced against each other. In particular, The Guardian notes his trademark sound as, quote, a vivid psychedelic melange of Jay Dilla-esque instrumental hip-hop, space-age R&B, bass boom, and old-school rave euphoria, garnished with effervescent FX from unexpected sources. That's a hell of a description. And yet, when you hear the Critical Five, it may just make sense. Watch Dogs 2 is the only game that he has worked on for a score. It was one of those things like, he's got a notable Wikipedia page for his actual music industry work. And then it's like, oh, and then he also announced in 2016 he was doing the score for the game Watch Dogs 2. Just like as a total aside, it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, more about th- that, please. And also this. He has done two studio albums as Hudson Mohawk being 2009's Butter and 2015's Lantern and also just a plethora of mixtapes and EPs. As far as the historical development research for the Watch Dogs 2 soundtrack, it's a score that's approached from the palette of cult science fiction music, which again, when you kind of look at the visual style of DeadSec in Watch Dogs 2, that, that makes sense. Also, I mean, we compare it to Grand Theft Auto being hot at the time, right? Well, when you're driving around, there are radio stations that have a whole bunch of licensed songs. So it's very GTA-like there in that sense as well. So what does Hudson Mohawk sound really sound like? Let's get to the five critical tracks for Watch Dogs 2. Gotta start with the first track, Watch Dogs Theme. Not only is this the main theme of the game, as the title would suggest, this plays on the main menu screen. So it's definitely one of those ones where it's like, maybe you linger on that main menu for a little bit, or, you know, the world's loading and you're vibing to this song, and it's a really cool sound. It's one of those ones where it's like, I hear this one doing my research for uh, for this episode, and it's like, oh yeah, no, this is definitely has to be here. I. Uh, You've got vocals at the beginning of the clip, and then it goes into like this, this phasing, like getting some maybe some sixteenth notes in there. 
But then, like, you get the organ-like instrument and chords coming in there. Heavy, heavy bass percussion going with it as well. Uh, later in the piece, it's not afraid to get in some overmodulation, some distortion, some extra tuned-up synths. Uh, but it's, I, I guess I don't know what the original Watch Dogs theme from the first game was. So I'll take it just at its word here that this is Watch Dogs theme. And it's a chord progression that's pretty familiar throughout a lot of the soundtrack. So when I first listened to this for the first time, uh, I didn't like it. And then, like, I listened to it uh, one or two more times. And the vocals grew on me super hard because they were initially the reason where I was like, I don't super dig this. But actually, I think they're kind of really cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, once you you listen to it uh, a good bit. Uh, I think that is definitely the part that jumps out the most for me. Yeah, it's definitely one that grows on you, especially after you revisit the main menu multiple times for you know adding on to your, your playthrough. Number two on the Critical Five, this is Play and Go. This song plays in the introductory mission of the game. So when Marcus Holloway has been charged with this crime and DeadSec challenges him to break into CTOS 2.0 and clear his name. This is where you're like, you're learning the basics of the game, the basics of stealth, the basics of hacking. And this song is playing through it all with like starting with these like tribal drums in a way. You get the these vocal hits that really stand out in the like the high pitch. It just cuts through the action of the ah, and then building and have these big, meaty electronic chords that come into like really lets you know like you're in a hacking game. And then the, also these little like fluttery electric piano keyboard accents. It's another one where it's like I forgot about this song until I played this and it's like oh. This is, where is this? This is at the beginning, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is definitely another really memorable track. So I was glad that I got to stumble upon this one again. Yeah, this song is really, really cool. Uh, I I totally dig this song. Uh, it doesn't sound like, any, I can't paint any comparisons to anything else with this song. And that's always a really neat thing when you hear like a sound that just sounds uniquely its own. And hopefully, like, that big, long Guardian description is starting to come back, right? Where it's, like, vivid, psychedelic, instrumental hip-hop, space-age R&B, bass boom, rave euphoria, effervescent FX, like, all of that. It's like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's actually a pretty good description now that you hear some of his work. It's, I mean, it's a mouthful, but yeah, 100%. Number three on the Critical Five, a different direction here, a different composer but maybe the most memorable song in the whole game. Number three on the Critical Five, this is The Day Is My Enemy. 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 
Oh my god, the hype is real. Love this song. The Day Is My Enemy is composed and performed by The Prodigy. So it's another, it's a licensed song, but one that they brought into the game that stands out so much because you are doing something completely different than you've done all game for this mission, uh, where it's like the 13th of 15 main missions. So like, we're jumping way ahead. We're like getting to the end of the game here. But Marcus gets to take control of a spider drone tank. And basically your control is you are now this spider, big mechanical tank that has lots of firepower. You can crawl on walls and the ceiling and it changes your perspective, your camera to fix that essentially. And this song, this pumping track plays as you control this spider bot tank. Uh, wow, wow, wow. I think if, if there's going to be one song from this game that we only had to talk about one song from the game, it, it's not a Hudson Mohawk piece. I'm sorry, but it's this one. I, I love the little melodic electronic notes that come in at the end of the clip. But I mean, all of the vocals from the day is my enemy. The night of my fave to all the get down, get down. It's, it's such a big hype song. Love it so much. Had to be here. This is, yeah, this song is super hype and super cool. Uh, here's hoping that copyright claim is not a thing with this one, but we'll see. Fingers crossed. It's, it's the one though. It, it just had to be here. Number four on the critical five. This is Shanghai. This song plays in the second to last mission of the game. And at the beginning of the piece, I don't think it's here in the clip, but there's a choir chord progression that starts off uh, the piece. And I, I think this is where like the chord progression is really reminiscent of the main theme. Uh, then it really drops into a heavy beat, dies down a little bit into this light piano medley, and then blends the two together. So it's, it's a really cool song i think just a, a very different take on the motif of the watchdogs theme and uh it's actually first on the ost album itself so like it's the first track so it it stands out in a variety of ways and i really like just like the sound overall i think this is my favorite song on the critical five here hmm. uh it's just got a really nice groove to it that i just super dig honestly yeah yeah, it's a really neat sound. It just stands out when you're going through the album. And uh, again, not a, a big, strong moment in the narrative, per se, that it's attached to, but just a really great sound. The last piece, on the other hand, number five on the Critical Five, is the final mission. So it, it's it's a big deal. This is The Motherlode.
Get that little drum fill at the beginning, and then this wall of electronic sound. You're doing the big thing. You're hacking into Bloom. It's like hacker bliss. Just, you know, being swarmed by all this this sound. And then even like little little sprinkles of high-pitched notes. Just everything's positive. Everything's good. Like you're coming together as a team. You're taking down the man, the machine. Uh, it's It's a really positive piece, despite it sounding so oppressive with just how much sound it actually is. Really, really cool. Yeah, this definitely has a hacker vibe to it. I will I will give it that. Not the biggest fan of the wall of sound aspect. I think it's a bit much on this one. I don't hate it, but it's a bit much overall. But still like if I mean if it's the final boss, it absolutely should be here. Mhm. Yeah, definitely a good critical 5. Uh going into research for this episode, I'm like, ah, what am I going to do besides the day is my enemy. And I'm like, I'm really glad that I found pieces that I really identify with. I uh, can peg generally in the game. And uh, yeah, a, a solid list. But I do have a couple songs on the cutting room floor. One of them is Amethyst. All right, I'll be real. I don't know where this one plays, but it's one that definitely stands out on the soundtrack. Those Genesis vocal hits, though. Little burp sounds that come in. Uh, It's really strong bass, and it's, it's almost like trying to sound a little retro in a way, but definitely infused with modern electric sounds, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, but man, that, that vocal hit, that just brings you right back to like Sega Genesis, Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> like, I feel like there's got to be some retro intention there. Really, really cool sound. Yeah, I was definitely going to say I could 100% like see this being in a Sonic game with some lower quality percussion. Uh, that <laughs> yeah, percussion is yeah. too high quality for the Genesis. It never would have been able to do that. But uh, just, yeah, this this kind of feels like a Sonic song. Yeah, it's that sample that really stands out for sure. The other one on the cutting room floor is Home Sweet Home. Home being spelled H-A-U-M because Home 2.0 is the new home automation system. And, well, CTOS has its roots in that, of course, and we can't have the citizens of San Francisco be spied upon in their own homes, so DeadSec's got to do something about it. And this is the fifth main mission of the game that this plays in. A really cool piece where, like, this low chord progression is just begging to say like i am an ominous threat fight me like you know try to stop me dead sec and like that rhythm that's going in with the percussion is almost like pushing against it It, it's a real 
cool combative piece when you just look at the instruments in that sort of way. But yeah, I love the the kind of evil vibes that the chord progression gives off. Yeah, it's a it's a really good like the chord progression is pretty cool, but I I like the rhythm the most. I think that's the part that sticks out to me the most, and especially the like synth that's going along with it. Mm, yeah, uh, I think that really that gives this song a really cool vibe. So what will I never forget about Watch Dogs 2? It's a definitely unique take on the Ubisoft open world game, which, uh, again, guilty, I love. (laughs) I'm playing Assassin's Creed Unity in 2020. What does that say about (laughs) what I like to play as far as games go? In two weeks' time, I'm going to be down that rabbit hole, well, two to three weeks' time, I'm going to be down that rabbit hole with Assassin's Creed Valhalla. But... Watch Dogs 2 was a really cool take on this. And as we get a new Watch Dogs installment, you know, this week with Legion, uh, it really reminds me of like the fun that was just had with 2. The not taking itself seriously, the the glitchy pop art, the city of San Francisco and exploring that more and seeing where actual real life locations are in that game and how well they mapped it out. So that when I visited San Francisco, I'm like, oh yeah, I... I I kind of have the feeling of like being right back there. Fun times to the game. I can't say the plot overall is very memorable, but it's it's a good time tinkering around with the tools in a world that's immediately available right from the start. But when you compare it to Silent Hill 3, I mean H&M and genitalia like basically the same game (laughs) right right i mean uh, one of the tougher themes to put together this week for sure but that will do it for us this week on original sound chat you can find me on twitter at pete speakeasy joe is over at the dobaga the video version of the show is on the rhymes with asia youtube channel also at rhymesathasia.com but it's that mp3 podcast version that you want hosted by anonymous dinosaur at anondino.squarespace.com that's where Joe's other podcast, Masterpieces, is hosted. They just put out a Majora's Mask episode. That is great stuff. I uh, highly, highly recommend that. You can find Masterpieces and Original Sound Chat on podcast services everywhere, wherever you get your podcasts, including on Spotify. Not only do we have the podcast feed and bonus episodes all going to a big Spotify feed, we have a Spotify playlist where if we talk about a video game song on this show and it's on Spotify... It's going on that big playlist. Joe, what's being added this week? Both of these games are on Spotify. Silent Hill specifically got added, I want to say, near the start of the year? Uh, Silent Hill 2, 3, and 4, and then like Homecoming and stuff got added to Spotify. And then Watch Dogs, I'm going to assume, has been there for most of the time. Ubisoft seems to be pretty on top of that. Uh I wish they were on top of a few other things, but that at least I'll take. <laughs> One of the few things that Konami has done right. That's that's for sure. And then when you're done listening, you can find us on social media for the show at Soundchat OST. Leave feedback for us. Let us know how we're doing with these episodes and give us some suggestions for games that you'd like to see covered in the future. As far as bonus tracks go, uh, we are working on best of 2017. That's our next best of coming up. Uh, we may have a spoiler episode a spoiler warning in a couple weeks time so uh, prepare yourselves for that i guess and then uh, whatever else coming up also uh, if you get questions in because our thanksgiving q a is coming up so we'd like to get your questions answered on that show so 
drop those for us uh, at SoundChat OST on social media. Joe, who are we talking about next week? I will be talking about Seth Parker. I will be talking about Norio Hanzawa. All right, let's play us out. And I found a track on YouTube as far as remixing a song from Watch Dogs 2. The YouTube channel wasn't from the artist, but on SoundCloud, the artist DJ Abomination did a trap remix of the main theme of Watch Dogs 2, titling it We Are Dead Sec. And it sounds pretty cool. Hope you enjoy that. Thanks so much for listening this week on Original Sound Chat. We'll see you next time. Take care. Take care.